All right, we are in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1. <clears throat> we are continuing our study uh, of the life of David. And today we're going to learn of an important lesson on how David views his enemies. What is his mindset? What is his heart as, as uh, he's going to come face to face with the fact that both Saul and Jonathan are dead, killed in a battle? And so this, this is going to be important for us to see how God wants us to treat our enemies. Uh, and, you know, for the world, the world has trouble treating their friends. Am I right? The world has trouble treating their friends. Uh, they backstab and they're jealous and, the, and they're envy. God goes beyond that. God said, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to love my enemies. Lord, that's a hard thing to do. Well, David's going to give us a template today uh, to show us how that takes place and why that's important to the heart of God. So if you have your Bible open, 2 Samuel, let's start with the first couple of verses in, in chapter 1 there. After the death of Saul, and Saul was slain in that battle in which David was lining up to go out with the Philistines, you can see how God spared him. It would be a horrible thing if he was part of that, that battle that Saul died in. Uh, and so after the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag for two days. So he doesn't know that, he doesn't know yet that Saul is dead. He's up in Ziklag retrieving his family, uh, the hostages and the possessions, and he brings them back. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. And in that period of time, if you came in with uh, torn clothing and dust on your head, that, mean, that meant you were in a period of mourning. You were mourning. So this, this guy walks in, it's, you know, it's obviously not good news. Okay? It's not good news. Uh, when he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked. Tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? He goes, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the, with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, uh, and I said, What can I do? He said, Who are you? Uh, An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. So you can imagine this, this uh, site where this Amalekite comes in with the crown of Saul uh, and the bracelet, effectively, the arm bracelet of Saul, and presents it uh, to David. Um, and so, uh, how did this all come about? Well, we know from other readings uh, in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1, we know that when Saul was wounded, uh, he decided to try to end his own life uh, and, and fell on his own spear, but apparently did not kill himself. Uh, and so, even though he was mortally wounded and was dying, he still had life and was very much fearful of the fact that if he were taken prisoner by the Philistines, he, he would be really tortured uh, and paraded around. 
Uh, and in fact, you can see that if you look at 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 to 5. And we'll read that just so you get a context. Now the Philistines brought forth against, fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, uh, Abinadab, and Machishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But the armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Uh, when the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. You see the judgment of God, all right? You see the judgment of God. Uh, if you think you have to fight your own battles uh, against your enemies uh, and you're living a righteous life within the will of God, notice what I just said, living a righteous life within the will of God. God will fight your battles. If you're outside the will of God, not living a righteous life, God's not going to fight your battles. But if you're living a righteous life following God and your enemies come after you anyway, I want to assure you that God will take care of them in his own way, in his own time. He doesn't want you, he doesn't want you to have to do this yourself. He wants you to trust in him. And if anything, you've seen the lessons of David, that as David trusted in God, uh, he was lifted up. When he did his own thing, he fell apart. But we have to understand that God wants us to trust in him. And so when you trust in him, God will fight your own battles. And so here it is that David recognized, now he hears, that Saul uh, is dead. Uh, and so here's the question for us. I, I want you to see, we're going to study now David's response to Saul's death. It is an amazing response. Because if this were us, we would honestly be celebrating. All right? Oh, yeah, the wicked witch is dead. Thank you, Jesus, he's dead. Oh, I feel so good. Well, the sun is rising. The flowers smell great. What a wonderful day. You're not going to see this in David. I mean, this is 15 years has been going on, all right? And yet you're seeing this. Uh, he's been followed from hither to yon, and, and now his great enemy is dead. Uh, and he's, you're going to see this profound response, this response that we're going to see from him. He mourns. He's going to mourn for Saul. And so it teaches us to pray in order to see what God sees about our adversaries in the body of Christ. God wants you to see your adversaries through the lens of Jesus Christ, meaning they were created. God would like nothing better than to have them as his creation to be within the will of God. And even though they may not be, they were created still to be a part of the body of Christ. And God wants you to see them that way. This is a hard thing to do. Um, and, and I can tell you that, that it's taken me a lifetime to get to this point, and especially if you've been hurt badly. But the only way, and I'm going to say this to you, if you heard me say it before, the only way you can take the bitterness out of your life of people who have hurt you is to pray for them, is to pray for them. And I told you the story last week of how 
when I had been sued unjustly by that man in New Jersey, and it had gone on for four years, uh, and, and there was no way, no way, no way, my lawyers told me that this case was going to be settled, that it was going to be a lengthy trial, uh, and, and it would have been horrible because this man was filled with hate, would not listen to reason. It was only when outside of that courtroom I sat down with him and I said, I want to pray for you. May I pray, pray with you? May I pray for you? Oh, yes. I said, I feel in my heart that you're suffering and persecuted. Yes, I am. I am suffering. I am persecuted. And so this was a moment in time that God had arranged for that man. Now, unfortunately, that man has not stepped forward to Jesus. Uh, I, I, I did what God said. But I, the point is, somebody said it, and, and I think it was well said, that the bigger message was for me. God was teaching me. John, this is how you're going to have to live the rest of your life if you want to be used by me. You have to pray for your enemies. You have to see them through the prism of Jesus Christ. Even as they do evil to you, even as they may hate you, you have to separate that action from the person. You have to look at these people and feel as if they're being deluded, as being deluded and used by Satan. Uh, and under the power of Satan. And, and this is important. You need to do this and pray for them. And so you see this here. Uh, and, and one of the things that I have learned as I've studied this is that the Lord takes no, jo no joy in the death of the evildoers. You might think, oh, that doesn't make sense. I'm sure God is happy when, when, when the evildoers die. Well, that's not true. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 33. Verse 11, say to them, and this is the Son of Man is supposed to be saying this, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure. So that is God speaking. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's heart was broken that Saul finally had to, had to lose his life because of the, of the damage that he was doing to the kingdom of God. God is not happy uh, even as judgment is rained down upon evil people. And so we ourselves need to be mindful of that and to be within the will of God. That means that we cannot hate our enemies. We cannot hate our enemies. And we're going to talk more about this, because this is really the difference between us and the world. Everybody in the world loves their friends. That doesn't separate us from the world, but when the world sees that you treat your enemies, people that despise you and hate you, that you, feel that you treat them differently, let me tell you something. That's the mercy and grace of God to the world, to see that through you. God is using you in a powerful way. Look also at Proverbs 24. Verse 17, do not gloat when your enemy falls. When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice. That's a hard one. Do not gloat. Pray for him. Pray that God visits him, uh, that he has a vision, that he's restored. Um, and, and you see this in every aspect as you study David. Um, and so hearing the news about the death of Saul, David realizes that God's promise was about to be fulfilled in his life. You can imagine this. I'm about to become king. Saul is dead. You would think that he would be in a celebratory mood, and in fact, that is not the case. 
um, and he grieves. He grieves, legitimately grieves over the death of Saul because he was able to see Saul through the Spirit of God. He was able to see Saul through the Spirit of God, not through the flesh. And that's the lesson for us. God has given you the Holy Spirit. He has sealed you with the Spirit of God. And so he wants you, as you live your life, to look at people through that lens. And when you look at people through that lens, it allows you to do things that you never would be able to do through the flesh. I'd like you to turn, um, if you would there, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. No one. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see what this is? God has given you the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? It means that you, wherever you are, are to be the salt and the light. You're not to be the person who sets the fire. You're to be the person who puts the fire out. You're to be the person who comes in and gives wisdom and guidance, not hatred, not passion. That's what God has called us to be. Uh, and it's a ministry that God has given us, and you have that. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. You want the spirit and ministry of reconciliation? That's one of the principal ministries that God gave through Jesus Christ. Look, God had every right to destroy this world. We were evil. We were evildoers. We were sinners. We were in open, notorious revolt against God. We were shaking our fists. Some of us still shake our fists against God. And yet God gives Jesus Christ, gives Christ himself for the very reason of reconciling the world. And you see this uh, in, in, in the way that God uh, com communicates with man. He doesn't really immediately put judgment out on the evildoers. Let me tell you something. It's amazing God hasn't destroyed this world yet. When you look at the evil, you see the evil permeating from every way. God is long-suffering. He is patient. He waits and waits and waits. It is because God is exhibiting the spirit of reconciliation, um, even against those who are his enemies. And, and so verse 20 here in that section on, on 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. That's important for you to recognize. You are Christ's ambassador. You're not your own man. He's called you to be the messenger and ambassador of Jesus Christ. How you live, how you react, and how you speak and pray for people who are your enemies, who despise you, who want evil for you. Uh, and it's a hard message. It's a hard message. Uh, and we implore you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Uh, and so what a great passage this is, as you see um, how, how God wants us to live, and you see how through the power and grace of Jesus Christ, we can live this way. Now, I want you to see, if you would, I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1, and I want you to see exactly how David is going to mourn Saul and Jonathan, beginning with verse 17. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. And by the way, this is in front of all of the men that are with him, the 600 men and the families. Everybody is watching this. Uh, and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. Verse 19, your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How do you like that? Your glory, O Israel, your very glory, the man whom God anointed as king lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. What is he saying there? He said it's, it's evil for the evildoers to celebrate the death of one anointed by God. You don't celebrate. You don't celebrate that, the, the people who were raised up by God who have fallen. You don't celebrate that. You mourn that. And he's very, very conscious of this, very conscious of this, where he's indicating that this, that this should not be broadcast about in, in Philistia. Not at all. Verse 21. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain nor fields that yield offerings of grain, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. How about that? He's actually asking that the rain cease. That the rain not fall in the very fields where he was slain and, and fell dead. Uh, to, honor, to honor him uh, in terms of the, of the work that God had laid out for him. Verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. Saul? David, Saul? In life they were loved and gracious? What happened all those times that he threw the spear at you and tried to kill you and hunted you down like you were a, a wild animal? You see how the Spirit of God gives us the grace to do things that no human being would be able to do? Really? When I read this, I say to myself, Lord Jesus, what are you doing to David? How is he being elevated that he could speak in this gracious manner to someone who, put, who was out to kill him and destroy him? And yet you see how God wants us to act. God wants us to see these people in the light of God through the prism of Jesus Christ. They are the creatures and created by God. Yes, they have fallen, but we don't rejoice in the falling. We continue to pray for them. We continue to pray for them. And if you live like this, you live your life like this, you will carry with you the spirit of reconciliation, which is the very foundational ministry that God gave this world through Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen on that, please? I mean, this is a key point of this lesson. The ministry of reconciliation. 
that he could actually look and pray for Saul in the way that he says here. They were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. Weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. What was he doing there? He was making reference to the fact that in the beginning, Saul was serving God. And Israel prospered, and the people prospered. And so he was going back and looking at the original anointing of Saul uh, in the early days when he was God's man, and he was lifting him up. God had given him the spirit of remembrance to remember that. And I would say to you that one of the things that I think you need to do is even as you come against people that, that uh, do evil things to you, try to find something good about them. Try to find some memory of them, perhaps, that separates them from their current condition. Ask God to give you the wisdom and help you to do that. Because this is what we need to do. Because otherwise, you're going to be filled with bitterness and anger and resentment. And you're not going to be an example to the world. You're going to be just like the other people out in the street. And God is carving out a different ministry for you, for us. Look, I know what you're saying to me right now. Oh, John, this is hard. This is hard. I mean, I really, I, I understand this is hard. You know, this is exactly what it gets down to when God is really laying out for you the difference between us and them. Look, they're human beings, just like us. Why is it that we aspire to act in a different way? It's because God has given us the Holy Spirit. Within your heart resides the very Spirit of God. The very Spirit of God. And God wants you to respond to that Spirit and utilize that spirit. Have that spirit empower your life. And when you do that, you will carry the spirit of reconciliation. How the, verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Um, and continuing, your love for me was wonderful. More wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. What a lament. What a lament. Uh, what, what a gracious eulogy. I mean, what, this is amazing that somebody would be able to speak like this. Um, and so what you see here is that it is healing that's taking place. Now, David is speaking not only to the 600 men that are within his camp and their families. He's speaking to all of Israel because all of Israel will look to see the example they're going to look to see how David acts. And so what's taking place? Healing is going to take place because of the heart of David. By embracing the call to love our enemies actively, our feelings will change. And we will glorify each other's love. Now I want you to turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Right out of the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever given in the world. And I did a whole series on this a couple years ago, and you can get that and listen to it online. Uh, if this piques your interest, I would suggest you might want to do that. Uh, and now Jesus speaking here uh, on Sermon on the Mount on verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that typically was something that was said often in Jewish cir circles. Uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus says in verse 44, But I tell you, love your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collect are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's Jesus really hits it out of the park. Don't tell me you're just, you just uh, love those who love you. You're loving your brothers. That's like the world. Jesus uses the perfect example. The tax collectors do that, which was like the bottom rung of society. Even the tax collectors do that. But you, you have to aspire to something greater. God wants you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Yes, this is directly from the mouth of Jesus Christ recognizing the spirit of conciliation, the ministry of con reconciliation. Uh, and, and he says here, this is how you, how you will ultimately get your reward in heaven. Uh, in, in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? All right? And, and so the pagans do that. You're not separating yourself out in this world. God wants us to be an example to the world of what it means to be sold out for Jesus Christ. <clears throat> to be sold out. Uh, there is no greater proof that you have changed and have become a Christian than when you can show the world that you can love your enemies. You understand? There's no greater proof. You can go and, and, and mouth all kinds of platitudes. Oh, I'm born again. I love Jesus. Uh, I'm a good man. I'm in church, you know, five days a week. I go to six different Bible studies, and then all of a sudden somebody crosses you and you go, I hope you die. I hope you die. I hope you die. Well, maybe you don't do that. In New Jersey, we do that. That's why God delivered me from New Jersey and sent me to Florida. But that's the point, don't you see? That's, don't you see? That's the essence of the Christ-like walk, that all of a sudden you don't think and talk like that that you walk and talk differently, that now you, when your enemies come across you, the world looks at you and you go, oh, that guy's different. Oh my, look at, look at the way that guy lives. Look at how that, that guy is mistreated, and yet I see him. This is the most convincing way to prove to the world that Jesus Christ exists. How many of you have said to me, oh, I want to find a way to serve God. I'm waiting for my call. I want to go on a mission. You want to go on a mission? There's your mission. Right here in Naples, act like that. Act like that, and you have fulfilled the first mission that God has called you to do. Act like that in your family, all right? Try that in your family, when your kids do something to aggravate you, or your wife says something out of line, all right? Act like that, all right, as you pray for them. Act like that. Now you're in the mission field. You want to be in the mission field? There's the mission field. This is the most convincing way to show that Jesus Christ has entered your life. This is God's grace to unbelievers. Listen to what I just said. This is God's grace to unbelievers. Meaning what? He shows the unbelievers that this is his grace, that people who they have done evil to will pray for them. The people who they have been mean to and hated will, will, will not return that. 
That's God's grace. He's speaking to them. Now, they may not want to hear it, but he's speaking to it. Uh, and you will be a witness. I want you also to turn to Luke chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 35. But love your enemies. This is Jesus. Love your enemies. Do good to them and, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me read that again. Did I get that right? He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked? Yes, for a time. You understand that? Yes, for a time. God exerts his kindness even to the wicked for a time. The rain falls on the just and the unjust for a time. But there is a day of judgment. There is a day of reckoning. And you see it in the life of Saul. Okay? So even though someone may be wicked uh, and not a good person. Some of you have said to me, I don't understand it, why it seems like these people prosper. It is they are prospering because God still exerts his kindness on a lost world. We don't know the mind of God. We don't know what God is doing. Who knows if this is within his will to bring people to faith? I can't say it. But certainly, certainly it is when he shows you, when he demonstrates you, you are his poster guy. That's what God is doing. He's using you as an example. The scriptures tell us that the angels stand in awe when they see men like us serving God. The angels can't believe it. They were there at the Garden of Eden. They saw what man is like. They saw the sin nature. They are awestruck when they see what happens when the Spirit of God inhabits the life of men and when men are sold out. This is a tremendous uh, example here of how God wants you to live. And so you see it here. Uh, and so now the, the Amalekite comes forward and is boasting to David, really, uh, that, that, that he, he ended Saul's life. Uh, and by the way, how typical of Saul to enter a battle with the crown on his head. Did you miss that? He's got the crown on his head. He's going, going in a battle against the Philistines. These, there must be, you know, several thousand archers. They, they look out. And by the way, we know that Saul was, I think, six foot seven. So here's this guy, six foot seven, surrounded by uh, an army of, of Jews that probably were maybe five eight. That's one of the reasons Saul was picked as king. So he's six foot seven. There's all these five foot eight Jews out there. Here they are, the archers. Who do you think they're going to aim for? <laughs> aim for the tall guy with the with the crown on his head. No problem. So no telling how many arrows were in his body. I mean, do you, do you, but do you see the hubris? I mean, do you see the hubris when you, when you really, when you walk away from God and you lift yourself up and it's all about you, you, me, me, uh, you know, I, I, and, and, and the stupidity that you do and the dumb things that you've done. Oh, God, forgive me. I've done a number of them. It's when I've walked away from God and not acted the way God wanted me to act. There he is. He got a crown on his head. He's dead now. He's dead and he, and he did it to himself, his, his pride. And so, so now the, the, the Amalekite is, is now lifting himself up uh, at the news that he put Saul out of business. And so here's, here's, the, here's the point of this. 
I'm sure the Amalekite came to David and figured, oh, this is going to be good. I'm going to be honored. I'm going to be lifted up. When David hears that I was the guy that finally put him out, oh, this is going to be good news. Uh, and then I'm sure David shocked the Amalekite by, by uh, indicating, hmm, not a good thing. Not a good thing that you did. If you look at uh, uh, First Samuel, Second uh, Samuel, chapter one, uh, verse eleven. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, "Where are you from? I am the son of an alien." An Amalekite answered. David asked him. Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go strike him down. So they struck him down, and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Now, how do you like this? That, that David, David would still see Saul as the Lord's anointed. He would never lift his hand. Now, you see how God intervenes here. God had promised that David would be king. All right, David didn't have to get his hands dirty. David didn't have to go into battle. David didn't seize the, the crown or the, the wrist bracelet, the arm bracelet. God provided it to him through the actions of others. Uh, and yet you see this, that, that this Amalekite completely mis, misconstrued, misconstrued his role, thinking that what he was going to do was going to be uh, approved. Now, there was a permanent judgment by God against the Amalekites. Um, and this was going back to the days of Moses when the Jewish people exited Israel <clears throat> because the, the, the Amalekites were despicable people. As the, as the Jews are exiting Israel and beginning to tra uh, traverse to, the new Can to Canaan, uh, to the Promised Land, the Amalekites would wait and go after the last people in line, the slowest, the weakest, the hurting, and would pick them off and would kill them. It was a despicable thing that they would do. And so turn to Exodus chapter 17, and you're going to see the judgment of God. <clears throat> Verse 14. The Lord then said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to re be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it. How about that? Write it down and make sure Joshua knows about this. Because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Oh, God. Wow. That's pretty serious. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. How's the Amalekite countryside doing today? <laughs> Many of you made a visit to it? You go out to Israel, you say, I wanna, I'd like to take a side trip, trip to uh, the Amalekites. They're gone. They're gone. There's not a trace. Do you ever wonder, folks, do you ever wonder what happened to the Philistines? What happened to the Amalekites? And there's little old Israel, right there. You can go and visit it today, uh, the same place 
where they plop themselves after staying 400 years in Egypt. Do you see the hand of God? All right? You, you have no greater testimony of the hand of God than the fact that their very enemies are gone. They're gone. And you see this. And so this, this, is, this is unbelievable. The Amalekites attacked the defenseless Jews. And God did not forgive them. And that was a punishment that continued until they'd be wiped out. And so here this Amalekite figures he's going to be, be honored and lifted up uh, and, and, and rejoiced over. And yet you see, you see uh, exactly how God looks at, at them and wipes them off the face of the earth. And so I want to be able to emphasize this aspect uh, of this lesson. And the aspect of this lesson is that God give you wisdom as to how he wants you to treat those who don't care for you, those who don't lift you up, those that, that, that don't admire you, those that wish you evil. Uh, and what God is saying to us is do not revisit that action, that, that feeling with the same kind of action. God wants you to, to, from now on, do not judge men in a carnal, earthly way according to appearances. Uh, uh, and human cred uh, credentials or national origin. Do not judge men like this. But God is asking you to look through the prism of Jesus Christ at the world um, and, and to look at, at the fact that God has created these people and God loves these people uh, and would like them to come into the kingdom of God and would like to find a way to embrace them and bring them into the kingdom of God, and that you may be the very last way that these people are taught what God is about. You think these people are going to go to church? You think they're going to go to a Bible study? But they will see somebody that they hated and despised, and will see how that person acted towards them. And one of the things that really strikes me is, you know, that we always say, that David was the uh, foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, right? David, David was the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Um, and David is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. David wept after Saul, wept the way Jesus wept about Jerusalem, knowing that he would, would shortly be crucified, and that and that the Jews would destroy him. Turn to Luke chapter 19. As we bring this lesson to a close, Luke chapter 19, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Oh, I mean, how serious is this? I mean, how serious is that? There's Jesus going back to Jerusalem, knowing, knowing what, what the Jews would do to him. And he sits there and he cries. He weeps. God cries for the ungodly. God weeps for the ungodly, knowing that he gives them the chance to be saved, and yet they will not take it. And you see this here, and it's an example. It's the foreshadowing of David. As David weeps for Saul, as God is giving you that picture of how God wants us to act, Jesus himself 
800 years later, will effectively repeat that as he goes into Jerusalem, looking at the very people who will murder him and crucify him and sits there and sees in the spirit that within 40 years, the city will be wiped out. Not one stone will be left on another. That the Roman generals will come in there, and when, when Jesus said not one stone will be left upon the other, how has that become a correct prophecy? It becomes a correct prophecy because the walls and the temple are filled with gold. And so the Romans find that the only way they can get the gold is to set the entire place ablaze. And as that fire takes place, and the walls crumble, and the gold falls out, they, they say that most likely a million Jews die. A million Jews die. All right? And Jesus is saying to them, this could have been spared. This could have been spared. But you did not see your day of visitation. You did not see your day of visitation. And so that's what God says to us. As he said to Saul, you can't act like this forever. There is a day of judgment. That's not our responsibility. God's not calling you to be the person that renders the judgment. He renders the judgment. God calls on us to love, to pray, the ministry of reconciliation. That's the thing you want to be able to remember today. The ministry of reconciliation so that you can be like David, that even after somebody aspired against you for years upon years, that, <clears throat> that you can still pray for them, that, that, you, that you take no pleasure in their death. Let's close. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the lesson that you've given us today. Lord, I thank you for this inspiring figure of David who shows us so many ways, Lord, how to live and really then how, how to act when our enemies die. Lord, give us the grace to love our enemies. Lord, help us. This is a hard thing for us. It's so difficult when people treat us unfairly for us not to respond in the same way, but we know you don't want us to do that. And so we pray through the grace of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that you will allow us to live a more godly life, to be the kind of man that you want us to be. Protect our people. Let this lesson resonate with us this week, Lord, and bring us back safely to continue the study of your word. We put all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.